Psalms chapter number 11 this evening, and I'd like to read the entire psalm, just seven verses, and preach for a little while, uh, particularly out of verse 1, but we'll cover the whole psalm this evening. David writes and says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Now look back at verse number 1. We'll read this once more and pray. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Lord, we just ask that Christ would have preeminence in these next few moments. Lord, that He'd be glorified and that Your will would be accomplished in our lives. Now, Lord, we love You. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we read the 11th Psalm, there could be, I suppose, some speculation as to who David is speaking to. You know, sometimes many of the Psalms, in fact, that David writes, he's talking to the Lord. Sometimes David is talking to himself. Amen? They might lock him away nowadays. I don't know. Sometimes he's talking to the righteous, and sometimes he's talking to the unrighteous. There are times that through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, all of it's through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, but there are times that through that inspiration, a forward glance is cast to prophetic things. Sometimes he's not even speaking to anybody that lives at that moment when he pins it down, but God is speaking to future generations. There could be some speculation, I suppose, as to two different groups of people that David could be talking to in this psalm. And I'll tell you uh, which one I believe it is. Some might suggest that David is speaking to the unrighteous in this particular psalm. Uh, when he says in verse number 1, In the Lord put I my trust, how say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. Evidently, David is speaking to someone that is telling him a course of action that he should take. As we read this psalm, it becomes uh, keenly apparent to us that this is the wrong course of action for David to take. And he rejects that bad counsel. Some would say it's the wicked man that is telling him this. And I certainly wouldn't fall out with you over that if that's what you believed. But I don't believe David is speaking to the wicked man, per se, when he writes the 11th Psalm. But I believe, rather, that David is talking to the carnal man when he writes the 11th Psalm. See, I don't believe that David is looking outward at those that would give him bad advice. But I believe that he is looking inward at himself, which would take the path of least resistance, and would not traverse the hard way that sometimes the new man has to walk. And the question that is put forth in verse number 1, How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? That's not something we say very often today, but I think most of us can gather 
the sense that is being given in that passage without needing any kind of computers or uh, extraneous books or dictionaries. Can I put it to you in a way uh, that you and I might be a little familiar with? David almost says, I trust in the Lord, so why do you tell me to run from my problems? You know, I don't care who you are in this room tonight. We all have problems. If you've found a way to walk through this world with no trials, with no difficulties, I sure wish you'd let me know about it, because that's the way I'd like to walk. But I believe it is common to the human experience that we suffer, that we go through trials and difficulties. I wish this was a life of answers, but in some ways that'd be discouraging because we don't have very good answers. But the truth is, this is a life of questions and curiosities and doubts sometimes and discouragement. If you live in this life any amount of time, you're going to run into some problems and you're going to have to make a decision as to how you're going to deal with those problems. Now, let me say this. We live in a society that runs from its problems. Somebody say amen to that. Hey, I mean, listen, don't like the job you got, go find you another one. You know, no notice, no, no, uh, no character, just run off, find you another one, you know. If you don't like the spouse you got, that's alright, go and get another man's, walk off somebody else's. If, if there's problems in the house of God, why that's alright, just go two blocks down the street, you'll find somebody that'll take you in. You see, it seems as though everywhere that we turn, we find people fleeing and running from their problems. But if I read this psalm correctly, David, when faced with the choice of whether to run or to resolve to stay and face them, David made the decision to stay rather than to run. I believe you and I'd be helped tonight if we would learn and understand why it's so important that when we're faced with a problem, we stay and by God's grace deal with it and address it and overcome it through His will, rather than running and allowing it to at a future date catch up with us one way or the other. And I want to give you three reasons from this psalm that I believe it's not a good idea to run and hide. Or let me say this, three reasons that it's good to stay and to face the problems that you're going through. Notice number one, uh, the reason that you ought to stay and fight and stay and move forward is because fear is conquered when we face our problems rather than just running off. Now, let me tell you something. You may have been raised old school. Used to, if a fellow was afraid of water, they threw him in. Amen? Because they knew there's no better way to get over a fear of something. Afraid of flying, fly cross country. Afraid of driving, jump behind the wheel. Whatever it might be, we've known, and it's almost instinctual to the human mind, that the way that you deal with something is by confronting it and facing it and seeing it for what it truly is. And David, the first thing he does is he determines he's not going to run away. And I want you to notice why. Notice David's determined trust that he has. Look at verse number 1. He says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. Now, can I give you a very basic, fundamental, elementary Christian truth? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm not going to tell you that you're never going to have problems, and I'm not going to tell you that you're always going to get past your problems in the way that you hope to get past your problems. But I can promise you this, anything that is in your appointed path to walk by an almighty God, through His grace, it can turn to your good and it can better you rather than bittering you. And if you'll face it through His strength and face it in faith in Him, then God can get glory out of it no matter what. 
I think about Paul and his thorn in the flesh. There's probably not a person in this room that hasn't read that passage scores of times. And, you know, that's what Paul finally had to do. He kept praying and asking God to take it away and to take it away and to take it away. And finally, Paul just had to deal with it and face it and face it through the grace of God because God said, No, Paul, I won't take it away. You're going to have to live with it, but through it, my power and my glory will rest upon you. And you know that the very thing that got Christ the greatest glory out of Paul's life was the very thing he was trying to run from and get away from. Now, if I was Paul, I would have probably been doing the same thing. And there's no telling the thorns that I've asked God to take away. Uh, and there may uh, be no telling the thorns I might beg Him to take away in a, in a week or in a year or in ten years. But we just have to come to terms sometimes that you're just going to have to grit your teeth and trust God with it rather than praying that God's going to take it away and allow you to avoid your problem. David says, man, if I can trust God with this, then what is it that I cannot face? I have trusted the Lord God of heaven. I have placed my faith in a sovereign, thrice holy, almighty God. A God that has the power to create the universe. A God that has the power not just to create it, but to govern it, to rule and to reign over it. If He can handle all that, then what am I running from? Every single week I'm in the hospitals. I talk with people. It seems like, uh, you know, anymore, every time you turn around, somebody's getting faced with that ugly C word, cancer. Uh, and if not that, some other sickness that they weren't planning on. I've never found anybody that planned on getting sick, have you? And, uh, you know, it's difficult. It's tough. And so oftentimes you look them in the eye. You don't know what to tell them, you know. You're not, you're not going to sit there and lie to them. And you're not going to try to give them a false hope. But let me tell you something. I don't care what they are facing. God is bigger than it, whatever it is. Now, that's not a guarantee that God's going to take your problem away. He might make you face it like Paul did, but it's a guarantee this, that God can get glory out of whatever that you're going through if you'll yield it to Him. Notice David's determined trust. Notice David's developing troubles. Look at the next phrase. It says this, For lo, now this is what he's worried about. This is what, this what in my opinion, his, the natural man was telling him, David, y'all just run away. Don't face your problems. Why? Because of this. He says, For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about that. And I could probably give you some real fancy spiritualized application of that. And I could tell you that the bow means something and the arrow means something and the string means something. But can I just give you a very, very simple truth? Uh, And it was this. David was facing real problems. Real problems. I'm not just talking about somebody who said something bad about him. He's facing real problems. I'm not just talking about he wasn't going to have as much money left in the bank this month as he had left in the bank last month. David was facing real problems. There was an adversary. There were enemies that sought to take his life. And even with those problems, he could trust God. Now, can I ask you something tonight? If David could trust God with those problems, what problems can you not trust God with? What problems can you not trust God with? If David could look down the shaft of an arrow and understand that it could let fly at any moment, if he could sit there, and I don't know where David's at at this time in his life, I don't know that anybody could say for sure, but David spent a lot of time in the wilderness, in caves. Uh, he spent a lot of time even in his palace. But the way he talks about it, he, he talks like he's in danger. Am I right? 
I, I, I mean, I don't know anybody that's too concerned when they got, you know, like eight feet of wall between them and their enemy. But that's not what David is talking about. He's saying the unrighteous man, the wicked man, is seeking to take my life away even at this moment. David is facing down the sharp end of an arrow. And he says, man, I've, I've trusted God. What do I have to worry about? I've trusted God. What do I have to worry about? Now, listen, I don't stand up here on a pedestal and tell you that I never have doubts and discouragement and tell you that I don't ever get scared when problems come my way, because I do. But I, I refuse also, because of how human I am, to not take courage and comfort in the fact that if David could stand, so can I. David's made the same thing as you and me. It, it, really, to be honest, David had a re- worse record than you or I, for most of us anyways, uh, at least a worse recorded record. Uh, David was not a, a, a superhuman, but he was a man that had faith in the Lord God of heaven. And because of that, he was able to face down real problems. Notice the next phrase. This is interesting. It says this, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's no telling how many sermons have been preached from that very passage. But you know what I believe David's saying? Now, you don't have to believe this, but this is what I believe David is saying. David is the king. He's the leader. As such, his authority is the foundation of all authority in the entire kingdom. And I think David is saying this, if I was to be destroyed, what would that do to this kingdom? If I was to be destroyed, what would that do to this kingdom? Let me say this, that not only were they real problems, but they were relevant problems. Because they went all the way from the lowest person in the battlefield all the way up to the king's palace. I'm talking about something that was going to affect him and affect everybody that he loved. You know, if you're anything like me, sometimes I'm more scared for the people I love than I am for myself. Uh, you know, if I had to face the prospect of leaving this world tomorrow, I don't know that my greatest fear would be for myself as much as it would be for my family and who would take care of them and who would see to their needs and meet their needs. And I know I, know I don't meet their needs. I know God meets their needs. It's not me that meets their needs anyway. But David is facing the prospect of total and utter destruction, not just of himself, but of everybody that he loves. And within the context of that, his reply, whether it's to a wicked man or to his own wicked carnal flesh, is, I can trust God with these problems. Whatever it is that you're facing, you can trust God with it. He may not do it the way that you want Him to do it. It may not turn out the way that you expect. And truthfully, uh, if my life had turned out the way I had planned it, it would have been pretty sorry. I'm glad God did take control, because He's done a lot more with it than I ever could have done with it. But regardless of any of that, I can always trust God with my life and with any situation. I think that fears are conquered, but I think facts are considered when we face our problem. You know, oftentimes, uh, you know, and I I, I hate to quote him, but I will anyway. You've heard it said that, you know, uh, that the greatest fear is fear itself, right? And that, uh, that we have nothing to fear but fear itself and so on and so forth. You know, sometimes the mind makes a boogeyman out of things that really are not that big of a deal. The, the natural man, when faced with problems, always swells the problems and always shrinks God. Anytime you're faced with a difficulty, your flesh will always make it bigger and God smaller. And you need to understand that because it will help you to navigate through the fog when things go wrong. When everything goes sideways and doesn't go how you expect it, 
you need to understand that your natural man's going to say certain things to you and going to tell you certain things and do certain things to try to kick God off of His throne and, and put Himself on God's throne. And as such, oftentimes when we run from our problems, it just gives them room to grow bigger than they really are. David is facing some very real problems, but he finds out when he sits and thinks about it a little while that God's a very real God. And he understands that those problems may be big. His God is big as well. And, you know, oftentimes when we're facing difficulty, if we just stop for a minute and breathe and slow down, we'd remember how great and good and righteous and mighty our God is. All through the book of Psalms, time and time and time and time again, the history of the nation of Israel is recounted. You know why? Because they're like us. They had a tendency to forget all the good things that God had done. And we have a tendency to, to forget that. You know, we, as I was sitting, uh, I, I was over at the hospital yesterday. We went by to see uh, Miss Lou. She had had surgery. And uh, you pray for Joyce Whitson. She's in over there as well. And we stopped in the room and was talking to her. And, uh, you know, they, they were talking about some scans that had been done that, that came back, you know, there was nothing wrong. We was talking about Tammy Cooper, who it was, Judy Scarborough's daughter. And they had told Tammy that she had cancer. And uh, not just we think you do, not just you might maybe, but you do have lung cancer. And they did a biopsy on her. Uh, and it wasn't to find out if she had cancer. It was to find out how much cancer she had and what kind, what stage, and so on and so forth. And they opened her up, and they couldn't find anything. And uh, they went ahead, and I don't know what they biopsied because they couldn't find nothing, but they biopsied something. And sure enough, it came back, and there was no cancer. And uh, the, the doctors asked the doctor. The doctor said, well, we don't know what happened. said, well, you know, we took the scan. It lit up. That means cancer. There was cancer there. Uh, now there's not. We don't know what happened. And, uh, you know, when I was told that, I thought to myself, well, I know what happened. I know what happened. And let me tell you why. Because I was sitting over at the hospital with Lou Milligan when she was in the same exact situation. The doctors had already done a scan. They told her, Lou, you've got cancer in your lung. We don't know what kind. We don't know how much, but we know that you've got it. And they opened her up, and we were sitting out there. Me and Charlie was sitting out in the waiting area. And uh, pretty soon the doctors came out sooner than they were supposed to. And if you've been around hospitals any, you know that that's not good. That's either real good or it's real bad when they come out real soon. And they came out, and they talked, and they said, well, we got in there, and there was, you know, just nothing. There's nothing in there. There was no cancer whatsoever. Couldn't find anything. I could tell you story after story after story after story. That's exactly like that. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying how easy we forget. Man, it seems like every time God does something, we're surprised by it. And oftentimes when we run from our problems, we forget how big God is. But David, when he determines he's going to stand and face his problem, there's three facts that he considers. Notice number one, he thinks about where the Lord sits. Verse four, he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now, things look pretty bad where David was at. But things look just exactly like they always had where God was at. Now, that's an important distinction for you or I to understand. That things may look real bad where you sit, but things look just exactly like they are supposed to where God sits. You see, and no matter how big your problems are, none of them's going to take God off of His throne. Uh, the Son of God left the glories of heaven and went down and He suffered and died on a rugged cross. He rose the third day, He ascended, and He seated at the right hand of the Father. Now nothing will unseat Him from that until He's ready to come get His bride. Nothing. 
Why would we think that our problems could knock God off of His throne? Why would we think that somehow God is not in control? Don't ever forget that heaven has a throne. Don't ever forget that heaven has a throne. It's not just a bunch of folks sitting around singing kumbaya. It's a kingdom with a king, with a sovereign, with authority, with power, with rule and reign and dominion. And He is reigning over the affairs of this world. And there's nothing that enters the spectrum of your experience but what a sovereign God allowed it to do so. There's a throne in heaven and He's seated upon it. He notices where God sits. He notices what God sees. He says this, the eyes, or his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. I like this verse number five. This is interesting. It says, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Now that's an interesting distinction. Uh, here's why. Because that means, you know, you ever felt like God was just against you? Now who's honest enough to admit that? I didn't say you believed it. I said you felt like it. Raise your hand if that's you. Sure. There's been times I've felt like that. Just felt like God had sent His hand out against me for whatever reason. It seemed like everything was going wrong. It seemed like everything was going bad. And I couldn't figure it out and I couldn't make sense out of it. Let me tell you something. If I was an unregenerate man, that might be true. But the Lord's eyes try the righteous man. In other words, the Lord sees everything that's taking place. And if He allows something that He sees, it's for the purpose of testing and perfecting and purging and completing my life. Now, the righteous man, or the unrighteous man, he might could say, God is against me. But the saved man can never say, God's against me. Uh, the psalmist made the very statement. He said that the Lord is for us, for me. And I understand we ought to be for God rather than Him being for me, but if that's good enough for the psalmist, it's good enough for me. It, I, you know, there's just it's an encouraging thing sometimes to understand that God's not against you, God's for you. He's for you. That doesn't mean He's for everything you're for, but He is for you. That doesn't mean that He's for everything that you want, but He is for you. He's not against you. He loves you, He cares for you, and He sees everything that's taking place in your life. No matter how puzzling it may seem, no matter how confounding it may seem, no matter how much you struggle to wrap your mind around what's taking place, God sees every bit of it. And His grand purposes are trying and testing you in your life. Notice in verse number 6 we see what the Lord sends. It says this, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Now, let me tell you something. We're all too Christian to appreciate a lot of the Psalms, right? <laughs> you know, we're too spiritual. We don't ever want to admit we feel like David does. Sometimes David would pray and he'd say, God, get him. <laughs> and we think we're too spiritual to pray that way. Let me tell you something. Uh, my greatest desire would be to see the unrighteous man saved and forgiven of his sins. But I don't think it's carnal to appreciate justice being administered. We oftentimes will pander to the carnal man through complaining, but we'll never build the spiritual man through confidence that the Lord will execute righteous judgment and retribution. We look around at a world spinning out of control and we say, well, where's God in all this? But then somehow we're too polite and too spiritual to appreciate the fact that one day God is going to show up in this and He's going to set things right. And every hill will be flattened and every single corner will be made straight and God's going to set all things right. 
Now's the hour of darkness. Now's the time when the God of this world is roaming to and fro and seeking to execute His will. But there's coming a day when that throne that sits in the heavens is going to take up residence on this earth. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to sit down in righteousness with a rod of iron. And he's going to set everything right. And he's going to make everything right and righteous and true and just. And I take encouragement knowing that. I take encouragement knowing that. One day there won't be any more babies aborted, murdered. One day the sodomites won't get their way in everything. One day those that, that hate everything that has to do with God are just going to have to keep quiet. Amen. Hey, you know that's true. You know during the millennium, sin won't, won't be totally annihilated, but it will be kept in check under the, the uh, rod iron of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, it feels like we've got to be quiet. We don't have to, but it feels that way sometimes. There's going to come a day they're going to have to be quiet. And when the king of righteousness sits upon his throne, the Lord will send judgment upon the unrighteous and the wicked. One day, everything's going to be set right. We need never forget that. Right now, your world may be upside down. Right now, your boat may be taking on more water than you can bail. But there's coming a day when rest will come. And comfort and encouragement will come. And there's coming a day when we won't have to fight the way that we have to fight. Notice one final thought and I'm done. When we face our trouble, fear is conquered. When we face our trouble, facts are considered. But oftentimes, when instead of running, we face our problems, faith is confessed. Look at verse number 7. David says, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. Now, this was an expression of faith. Because where David sits, things don't look that way. Everything looks all right up in heaven. But nothing seems to look all right where he's at. Because if it did, either folks or his own flesh wouldn't be telling him to run away from his problems. Where he sits, there's lots of problems. But he considers the facts. Can I, can I say that he did it like Sarah did? He counted God faithful. He took God's record and he looked at it and he said, God's been faithful. He's not going to be unfaithful now. He looked at God's record. He said, God's still on his throne. I haven't heard news that he's been kicked out. God still sees everything that's taken place. I haven't got news that his eyes have been plucked out. And God's still sending judgment upon the unrighteous. I haven't got news that he's changed his mind about sin. He's considered all those facts. And based upon those facts... A faith is built. And he says this, though everything may look uh, unrighteous down here, there's a righteous Lord. And that righteous Lord loveth righteousness. He confesses that though things look bad, God is still good. Though things look wrong, God is still right. And that God is still in control. And he says this, His countenance doth behold the upright. That word countenance is interesting. You'll find it used in a lot of ways in your Bible. But basically it means his face. His face. And he's basically saying this, God has not turned his back on me. Now, I, I don't know about you, I can turn my neck a little ways, not like I could when I was just real young. But, but uh, I, I don't have any way to turn my back to you and turn my face to you at the same time. So David says, it may feel like God's turned his back on me, but he hasn't. His face is beholding me. It may, it may seem, when I look around, it may seem like darkness has swelled in, but the brightness of His countenance is still beholding my circumstances. 
And though I may not be able to see it with the natural eye, I'll look with the spiritual eye and take encouragement that the true God is still true and the righteous God still loveth righteousness. And though I may not be able to handle my problems on my own, I'll put my trust in Him. And through Him, He'll turn them to my good and His glory.